Hi everyone, it's Luke. Um, thanks for tuning in again to the Moments podcast. Uh, we're doing quite a lot of these at the moment, so I hope you're enjoying them. Uh, today we've got Adam. Uh, Adam is going to be talking to us about uh, leadership in part and millennials, which I'm one of, and I've, I, I forever kind of teeter on the fence as whether I like being in that group or I don't like being in that group. Um, so hopefully it's going to make for an, an interesting discussion. Um, Adam, I'll, I'll ask you just to start us off by just um, saying hello and introducing yourself, if you don't mind. Hi, everyone. My name is Adam Kingle. I am uh, a speaker, author, uh, educator. Um, I've just written a book called Next Generation Leadership, which is out now, just came out in February. Um, and it's all about uh, the paradigms of Generation Y or millennials and what they think about work, life, leadership, and what the implications are in terms of how one might manage them better. And uh, finally, if they were to assume leadership positions in their own right, which Luke knows all about, how might they lead in a manner which is uh, different from previous generations? Wicked. Okay, great. Um, so I'm going to jump straight in then to the first question, which is about your, um, your book. Um, so you, you've published the book, I think, as I understand it, there's as much as kind of 10 years of research on millennials um, and what their expectations are with work. Um, do you mind just kind of giving us the high level findings from the book um, and, and kind of what the key differences are when compared either to other generations or what makes them distinctive to other generations, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, well, the, the research began way back in 2009 when I was directing a program uh, at London Business School at the time called the Emerging Leaders Program, which is all for young high potentials. And uh, I had always suspected that there were some very different work-life careers and leadership uh, among our youngest employees. The sponsors, the companies, these participants were also saying that. And I really wanted to get a sense of what those, what those really were and you know, whether this was all true. Um, one of the main findings, and something I think we all observe, is that Gen Ys or millennials have very different views about how long they might stay with a given employer. Right now, the, the the bad reputation that one might have from that is people saying, "Oh, well, they're disloyal." Well, I'll come back to that point. But one thing I wanted to find out was, well, how long would one typically expect to stay with any given employer? So, if it's actually a paradigm that one feels I'm not going to stay with a given employer for for you know hugely long amount of time, I wanted yeah. to find out maybe if we could quantify that. So I did this survey over five years of all the participants who were going through this program and asking them, how long do you just expect to stay with a company? How long does that little voice in the back of your head tell you you're probably going to stick around? Interestingly, the answers were very consistent. 90% said they weren't planning on staying any given employer for more than five years. And a third said they were, really weren't planning on staying more than two years. Now, let me just deal with this point about disloyalty. It has nothing to do with, uh, you know, a sort of an un, unconstant or, you know, not, not respecting one's employer. It has everything to do with over a couple of decades, really over three decades, the world of work has become less welcome to the employee because pensions have been declining and moving from defined benefit to defined contribution. Company engagement has plummeted. You know, Luke, you know, as well as I, uh, yeah. you know, look at like, for example, Gallup's famous survey, employee engagement 15%. globally is, yeah. is, is you know, at best 15%. Yeah. Um, 
you know, worse than that, you know, I think it's a quarter of those respondents said they're actively disengaged. So not just passively unengaged, like, you know, I come into work and sleepwalk through my day, actively disengaged, like they would sabotage given half a chance. Like <laughs> they hate their job. They hate the lawyer. That's a horrible result, right? And, and a lot of this has to do with um, employers actually taking away a lot of reasons that one might feel compelled to ha- feel an affiliation, feel an engagement with their employer. It's a huge crisis. And, and Gen Y is just at the tip of the spear of this. So that was, that was probably the biggest um, conclusion that I came to. I guess then the, the second conclusion is, well, so what are they looking for in an employer? What might convince them to join or stay, particularly with top talent, right? There's still a war for talent. Um, and everyone uh, want, is fighting for 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 the for their for the for the best people. Yeah. Well, there were three answers that were very consistent in terms of what people are looking for more than anything else. Um, and again, very consistent. The the third most popular answer were development opportunities. And I, I can come back to this point if you want to delve into that. Um, but that's really important. And you know, frequent uh, frequently being given development opportunities, not you know, development opportunity once a decade, you know, as a reward for tenure. For you example. get to go on a course. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Uh, second was culture, organizational culture. I don't think that would come as a surprise to you either. You know, what, is it, what does it mean to work here? And how yeah. does that show up in terms of one's interactions? Number one was work-life balance. Here was also, I think, one of the most, one of the, really the most striking conclusions that I, that I found. When I followed up, uh, with the survey takers and them some qualitative questions to get behind this. Well, what do you mean when you say work-life balance? I discovered that there's semantic discord between the generations around this term, work-life balance. So older generations, when they hear work-life balance, they think what they're hearing is a when statement. In other words, you want to work fewer hours. You don't want to put in the hours I did. You don't want to pay your dues. You're lazy, blah, 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 blah. And then that creates this reputation about Gen Ys, which is completely yeah. inaccurate. When Gen Ys are saying work-life balance, that's a where statement. In other words, in most functions and industries, technology allows me to work anywhere, anytime. Particularly now during the coronavirus crisis, we are very aware. A lot of the assumptions we had about how possible or impossible it is to work from home have been completely exploded. So Gen Ys have been telling us well before coronavirus, why can't I work flexibly? Because technology allows me to do so. But Gen X and baby boomers grew up in, uh, in went through the ranks through the paradigm of FaceTime, right? You have, to, you have to show up. You have to demonstrate visibly how committed you are and how many extra hours you're willing to work. And you're not going to leave until the boss leaves. And Gen Y is just, you know, not, uh, not buying in that. Um, of course, particularly as the first digitally native generation. So that's quite interesting, where versus when. And I frequently find when I'm doing a talk on this, you know, in large groups that, that are multi-generational, particularly if they're colleagues sitting next to each other from different generations, I often see that younger employee kind of elbowing his or her colleague in the rib saying, like saying, see, I told you so. I've been trying to explain this to you for months, if not years. So I think though, among many conclusions, those were a couple of the very and, biggest and, ones. And do you think that that is generation specific? This, this, is, the, this is the thing for me that quite often um, gets, me, gets me going in the interest of the debate rather than a passionate view on one side or the other is, I think that we, if if you broaden it beyond the way in which we classify um, generations, 
and you look at the people living their life right now, I feel like there is a experience expectation that has grown over time and the sensitivity to it is there if it's all you've ever known in the kind of millennial camp. Um, but at the same time, my parents expect a much better quality um, of experience these days. And, and, and I'll give you why I think that that is true, which is um, I feel like there's been a, a, like a fundamental power transition between um, the retailer and consumer relationship in which we have. And what I mean by that is the basis of competition used to be price and convenience for where you would buy stuff. And it's no longer the, you know, the single factors of competition dynamics anymore because e-commerce is a thing and you can buy on mobile and the places in which we spend most of our time, um, particularly in the millennial generations, are digital rather than physical. Um, and I feel like that power shift led uh, to people differentiating based on experience across all generations, across all customer types. And therefore, we just come with a greater level of experience expectation as a population rather than a generation. How do you think yeah. about that? So it's interesting how we talk experience, right? Because um, how one how one experiences consumer experience is quite different in a retail yeah. and face-to-face -face retail environment versus an online environment. Um, certainly you see that, I think that there's a widening gap in terms of face-to-face -face retail experience between those who are competing on price and those who are competing on other factors. I think that yeah. the, the differences are becoming more acute um, yeah. over, over time. Now, in terms of online experience, uh, there are other there are other factors that are included in that. I think one is community, right? Which is which is maybe not engineered by the service provider or product seller, um, yeah. but is curated, or uh, you know. So you know, so, so many. I think some some people gravitate to use certain sites over others to buy whatever because of the numbers or the types or quality of the other consumers who are using that platform. And that's quite interesting, right? To think about that's a totally different business model that my gener I'm generation X that we didn't have to really think about or deal with. And I think we're still trying to come to terms with that. Is that um, too dissimilar to like social influence? Like the concept well, it, of where would you get a plumber from is largely referral yeah. or advocacy, but the digitization of that yeah. enables it to be much, much simpler and yes. the kind of availability of information is greater. You, you get yeah, that's right. Yeah, but so when I so different. Yeah, the the very first like for example when I when I first rented a flat um, right after university, you know, and I needed a plumber for the first time. How did I do that? I looked in the yellow pages, right, yeah. a physical yeah. book, um, and you know I called a few, and the first you know I explained the problem, and I probably picked one based on price, right? As you say, that was it, right? Who is yeah. the cheapest option? 
if, if I actually had other friends or family in the local area, I might have asked them, like, do you know this, you know, plumbing company? Could, would you recommend that I use them? But you know, the the community allows us to shortcut that. There have been a number of studies that, um, conducted by other people that have shown that more and more, and particularly among Gen Ys, is you know they trust the wisdom of the crowd, right? So if this service provider has a million five star ratings, they would more more likely choose that supplier, mm-hmm. even though. And I think this is the most interesting thing about that they may not personally know any of the people who gave that supplier a five-star rating. Yeah. Right? Whereas before my generation, you also, it was based on how much you trusted the person who was giving you the reference. Yeah. I feel like this is somewhat tied to uh, the loyalty consideration that I think holds constant into the workplace actually, which is if, if it's a, um, if, if, if it's a sense of feeling like allegiance to a brand, in essence, um, in the way in which we might think about loyalty, I think most of the kind of the, the, the pillars of society have caused a greater level of distrust than they have strengthened a trusting relationship. And I think, therefore, the whoever is... Um, uh, in an organizational context or in a brand context, people seem to start with a point of distrust, whereas they seem to have greater levels of trust in those in which they deem to be like them. Yeah. Both in a consumer context and in a work context. So you are probably more loyal as a millennial or not to your manager or the people that you work with in your team than you are your organization because there's a oh, localization totally. consideration there, but there's also a trust. The interactions are much more frequent in which you yeah. can trust them more. So, do, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. And, and that, that's absolutely true. And, and actually, I did, um, I, suspecting that, I asked this question, uh, too, as part of my research. In other words, I, what I asked um, Gen Ys is, do you feel a greater affinity, loyalty, engagement with your immediate team or with your company? And o- over half, I think it was about 54%, said it was their immediate team. Mm. Now, you might think, well, you know, it's a pretty fine balance, 54%. I think it's actually stunningly significant that over half are saying it's about their immediate team. Because that means that all this literature and all this um, conversation uh, that um, employers are having about the employer value proposition is actually increasingly becoming the wrong conversation to have. Yes. Um, This this is is all engagement, I think. Yeah. Like who, who uh, engaged in what? Yes. Uh, are you engaged with your employer to, uh, and based on the, your findings, like, is that even relevant? Right. That way I, I read an interesting um, study too, that was asking, uh, that were asking uh, Gen Ys, what's the number one thing you wish you would be asked or be able to do um, in a job interview? And this was fascinating. The number one answer was, I want to see where my my desk is or where I'll be working and who people immediately are around me. Now, how A, how many employers actually do that? <laughs> and B, of course, that reinforces the point that it's one's immediate employer experience is the most important uh, part of the employee experience. Has nothing to do, you know, very little to do 
with the brand, with the CEO, with, you know, I would even, I would even be um, somewhat, you know, uh, uh, one could argue this has been, I'm being difficult here by saying it might even have to, it might have nothing to do with CSR, you know, qualities like that. But who yeah. are the people immediately around me? Do I get on with them? Do we, you know, am I going to grow from them? Are they going to uh, develop me in some way, et cetera? You know, and that's, that makes the employee experience a quite intimate one that HR departments on the whole are not engineered or architected to do or deliver and aren't trained academically or philosophically to orient themselves toward. I, I, I love this discussion because for me, like we, we believe in the power of relationships and relationships in the sense of who you work with in a micro sense of culture rather than a macro sense of culture, if you get what mm -hmm. I'm saying. So totally. if, if the brand is saying we stand by these values, does the team and does the team need to? And what happens if the team had different types of values that didn't deviate significantly from the sentiment of the organization and what they're trying to create, but actually that increased engagement levels because they're all more on the same page. The people that want to join a team feel like they belong in that team already. And that, you know, you can, it also for me makes, the concept of change far easier because you're dealing with it on a much smaller scale than you are yeah. a 10,000 personal organization in, you know, 50 countries. Or yeah, whatever that's right. Be. I think it's increasingly very difficult to have a conversation about organizational culture. Cause of course, I think anyone listening to this conversation knows that any large organization with offices all over the world made up of say a dozen or more different functions and departments, those are all microcultures. They are all going to be different either subtly or significantly um, from all the other teams in that company. So what is the, uh, the overall company culture? Is there such a one? And actually, you, you could argue, and I'm going to be deliberately provocative here, you could argue that you don't want there to be a 100% consistent culture from department to department. For example, let's say one of a company's values is um, be innovative, don't be afraid to take risks. Okay, well, that's fantastic if you're the R&D department. I yeah. don't think that's so good if you're the accounting department. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I don't want creative accountants in my company. You know? <laughs> well, sometimes, <laughs> maybe. Um, no, I, I completely agree with you. I, and I think um, the, the thing that I often liken the way in which culture is described to is um, customer experience standards. If, if, mm. if I pin it back to brand and the intent of the manifestation of values being the rails in which dictate the culture. Um, it, it's, it's the same way in which we're trying to guide experience for customers. Um, whereas the customer experience is much easier to mandate. Whereas the way in which people decide they want to work and interact with each other is, is much, much, much harder to control in my mind because the way in which you serve customers is easy to be a mandate. Whereas the way in which I decide to work with you, well, who knows what's best there? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump to um, a question about relationships specifically, if, if that's okay, which sure. for, for me is it's fundamental to the way in which we think about our product is 
how do we strengthen relationships at work? And it feels particularly pertinent at the moment as everybody's transitioned remote due to COVID-19. Um, but it, it would be really useful to get your thoughts on, given there's strong benefits between stronger relationships and bonds between teams, we understand it in sport and the, whole, the same holds true in organisations. How do... Uh, how can organizations facilitate stronger relationships across different generations when maybe there's not common connection that is immediately apparent in interest yeah. or whatever? Well, as you can imagine, I think a really important element of that is to increase the dialogue among those generations. So, you know, the problem is that, you know, if, if you think of an organization, a, a typical, mm-hmm. um, at least industrial era organization that's shaped like a pyramid, you know, and, and promotion is often based on tenure, whether or not it's merit is another question. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, you yeah. will see the older generations at the top of the pyramid, right? Which implies that maybe they're, you know, so the very people at the very top are often, the, you know, among the oldest and they're only having, or, you know, conversations on a day-to-day basis with the people immediately below them, or slightly younger, and then, yeah. then, then them with the general, et cetera, et cetera, right? So how do we start having those that con- those conversations jump um, across generations. Well, there are a number of ways you can do that, of course. One is um, from the very simple, like, and, and unstructured, like management by walking around, right? So, uh, you know, I, I think um, it's incumbent on senior leaders to force themselves to get out of the C-suite um, yeah. and walk around and talk to people at all levels. Um, to really find out what's going on. Of course, that oh, I would also add, you know, talk to customers. That's a whole other discussion, I think, a whole other podcast, right? It kind of the other great irony is if one is really good about dealing with customers, one is promoted, and then you're leading a team, which means your attention is drawn more inward, which means you're no longer talking to customers, which yeah. means every day you're get, becoming more and more distant from what your customers' needs are. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a, that's a different conversation. But, the, but maybe a more formal structured way too to enhance dialogue is through mentoring. And, and when I say mentoring, I mean both mentoring in the way we generally think of the term and reverse mentoring. So if you really want to know, you know, what are your youngest employees or most junior employees thinking and how might you create a, a company that's more fit for them, um, ask them. But maybe do it in a, in a regular way, like we're going to meet you know, every other week for an hour and you're going to be my you're going to be my reverse mentor, right? So I, I'm I'm here to just listen and learn do, do from think, you. Tell me what's do going on. Do you think some of the core skills, though, in the example that you give, that I know feels like a different podcast? If you say you're really good at dealing with customers, but very often good at dealing with customers is because you ask the right questions and you listen actively and you try and do something about what they tell you. Is 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 management? that much different in terms of core skill set decided to be applied differently sure like what tells well, us that we shouldn't do the same things with a yeah. member of our team as we do our customers do you know what i mean yeah I, I think i do i think we all know intuitively and formally through you know research that empathy and curiosity are great qualities for leaders to have um, but some leaders don't, you know, don't come up through the ranks through by being uh, customer facing as well, 
no, um, technical you know, still, to, still today, the most, yeah, technical experience, but actually even today, the most common route to the CEO position is through the CFO. Um, in other words, yeah. you know, back uh, uh, in the back. business support function. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so I think it's also something to consider. I think this is a big reason why executive development is, ne- is not going to go out of fashion anytime soon, because these are still skills like empathy and curiosity and emotional intelligence that um, all leaders and potential leaders will require. Now, yes, some people develop those organically, and a great way to do that is if you're customer facing, but not, not everyone is, or, or not everyone comes up that way. Yeah, interesting. Um, another another kind of question for you, if, if, if okay, is um, we talked about loyalty earlier um, and how millennials think about loyalty to their organizations. Um, how an absence of loyalty i think we tie directly to people leaving us and you touched upon it a little bit earlier on is like how are we actually thinking about loyalty and commitment and some of those considerations like how how do or should organizations and hr teams think about designing for loyalty mm-hmm. um in the way in which they they think about their systems processes and approaches yes so uh, yeah a couple things about that and this is definitely not a completely comprehensive answer in the interest of time but one has to do with recognition and i don't mean you know promotion and um raises though those are all good things um but what's interesting is you know when when gen y are saying you know i need a development opportunity or i need recognition what i sometimes hear from their managers or from hr is yeah but you've only been working here for six months and we only have seven layers in the company i can't promote you every seven months <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but but, but and, and my response is yeah but that's probably not what they're saying right <laughs> you know a little bit of acknowledgement for their achievement and their or their graft is you know is is no bad thing and, and actually costs you nothing um, or very little. So that's one. But also I think that there's something around um, thinking about loyalty differently. So this also, I'm, I'm just bringing in another piece of research, um, a, a wonderful book called The 100 Year Life by Linda Grattan and Andrew Scott, right? Which tells us that people, um, uh, 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 younger people and particularly children, babies, et cetera, are, are gonna, live to be over 100 and at least coming from developed countries and if that's so and because pensions ain't what they used to be that means people are going to work as much longer too not just live longer and so if one is going to work for say 60 65 years that's hugely different from people in the silent generation or the gi generation who worked for about 35 years on average right so now people are going to work maybe twice as long that also means that even if they leave a given employer, you're also doubling the chances that they could come back. But yeah. that requires that when they leave, you exit them well, rather than the still somewhat traditional, oh, you're resigning? Okay, give me your pass key. <laughs> We're switching off your email address and don't hit the door, hit your ass on the way out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, may, maybe, we, maybe we could cultivate an alumni network 
of former colleagues. Professional services organizations are world-class at this. You know, your McKinsey's and Accenture's, et cetera. They even have reunions, just like universities do, of uh, former colleagues. Because, of course, they know that these people will be clients. They will be customers. They will be net promoters or net detractors of that company, whether as a customer or as a, you know, uh, as a, you know, recruit. Yeah. Um, but that also means, you know, maybe they'll come back with all this extra experience, perspective from the customer, leadership development that that company, by the way, didn't even have to pay for. And now they get another bite of the proverbial cherry. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And like, whose job is this? Like, is, is this is this what a leader of the future looks like? Can they really do it all? Um, and I guess. It's probably somewhat of a segue into what does what does the future of leadership look like, especially as you've got, you know, the youngest, uh, sorry, the older millennials now are kind of 39, 40 years of age. Yep. Um, and probably are in probably leadership positions already. So yep. two parts, I guess, to that question. Whose job is it? Because there's a lot to do there. Um, and a lot of skills that are missing around emotional intelligence and empathy and consideration of the individual rather than just the, the kind of rational business outcome. And then how does that lead to uh, leadership in the future? Yeah, great question. So, so certainly I think um, for large organizations that even have like an employee engagement or, you know, employer value type department or team, yeah. uh, I think they should you know, expand their remit to include things like your alumni um, and, as I said, kind of a more micro, thinking about more micro in terms of team culture and engagement. Um, Where's the money and we all that's, that's the big challenge as well, right? Is it, the, the the focus with no resource is really hard. Yeah. Well, think of it this way: you know, if uh, when when HR departments already you know scour the world to find top talent to recruit, all we're doing is saying you know rethink about how you define the pool from which you draw. Yeah. Um, so that that doesn't that isn't necessarily another body. Plus loads of money. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, and maybe, as I say, if you did even want to do, for example, a reunion every year, you know, that's not a huge investment of time, you know, one day a year or something like that. Mm. Um, but, but certainly I think a lot of this comes from HR, but also I think the leader's job is much more considering and cultivating their network. Now, generally we think of our networks as our colleagues, our customers, and, you know, maybe a few former colleagues, uh, maybe a mentor or two. But I think we have to expand that and really kind of think much, much wider now. And that's every leader's responsibility. Um, to, and, and, and who better than Gen Y, right? The network generation to help us yeah. to, for, to do that. Um, and then to your second question in terms of what might leadership look like in the future, one of the last questions that I asked in my survey uh, over five years is, what kind of leader are you going to be? What would be your mantra, the thing you hold every day when you walk out the door to go to work or when you turn on your computer at home to start work? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, what, 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 are you, what, what do you keep in mind all the time as a leader? What's, what's of primary importance to you? The least popular answer was focus on the financial worth of the business. The most popular answer was focus on renewing personal and organizational mission. Now, for a lot of people, particularly in older generations, that might scare them. And they mm. think, oh my God, right? This means business is doomed. But that assumes, and this is a huge assumption that I think is being disproven as we speak, that there is a trade-off, that there is a zero-sum game somehow between purpose and profit. Actually, 
one feeds the other. And there's lots of research on this now. Um, look at like the book Firms of Endearment, which showed that companies that have strong articulated purpose um, outperform their rivals and industries um, in public, among publicly traded companies by a factor of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, research at London Business School from two professors, Alex Edmonds and Yanis Yuanu, also was showing that per, uh, companies that are driven by purpose and mission again, outperform and are more innovative, interestingly, than a lot of their competitive rivals. Um, I think what this also demonstrates is that the more you're focused on purpose, the more you're focused on your customer, right? Because surely somewhere in your purpose is the idea of, well, whom do we serve? What value do we add? And are we all always kind of refining and rearticulating and examining and challenging that rather than having that those just be words on the page uh, to the investors in your annual report or values on the wall in the lift. Um, how do we really live those things? I think if you do that better, then de facto you're increasing the odds that you're going to enhance your financial performance. So it's sort of a difference of outputs versus outcomes. We need to be more focused on our outputs um the value we contribute to our customers to ourselves to our communities and to our world um versus you know thinking every day about well what's going to maximize my quarterly forecast for example you even have huge organizations like unilever right of saying well we're not going to do quarterly forecasts anymore and why did former ceo paul pullman say that he said because if i did that it forced me to be short term uh in my thinking if 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 I don't do the quarterly forecast reports, I can think long term, I can think strategically, I can think more about customers versus analysts. And that's, you know, I think where business should be um, focusing and refocusing their attention. Um, and um, what do you think are the foundations that need to be there to create that opportunity? And, and I ask that in quite a timely sense that, you know, coronavirus has been a problem since December. Um, it's hitting most of the Western world now quite aggressively. And you're hearing every day of a company that is furloughing hundreds, if not thousands of people, asking people across the board to take significant pay cuts or making large redundancies. Like it feels like there has to be a foundation there to be able to make those choices or am I getting it wrong? Well, no, I think that's right. I think maybe what you're implying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, these are not just decisions based on what your P&L is telling you or your balance sheet. These are also questions thinking about, well, how how do we prepare ourselves to add more value to our customers tomorrow than we did today? Um, and so actually what I hear in, in terms of companies on the vanguard right now during the coronavirus crisis is companies are thinking now is our time to innovate. Now is our time to really um, engage and ignite the, the capacity of our people um, to be, you know, to be engaging and innovative and inspiring so that when, when coronavirus passes and it will, um, we are hitting the ground running versus yeah. this long kind of slow plodding recovery. Um, so, so unfortunately, I think kind of the, the, the situation that you're describing is a bit of a similar mistake that a lot of companies made in the Great Recession of 2007 and 8. Um, 
you know, so I, even though the circumstances were different, a lot of the in the the choices that companies are facing are the same or similar. Um, and there are lessons to be learned there. Some companies have learned it and are now responding accordingly, you know, a little bit wiser from that time of 12 years ago, and some are not. Um, you know, yeah, I totally agree that, you know, perhaps you don't have the cash flow, for example, to pay your full uh, payroll. Yeah. But think creatively about that, right? Can you have, can some of your people be contractors, you know, and come in, uh, on a project by project basis, but but simply can can you think about how to bring your people in to make your workplace a better force for good for the people that you serve, versus that simply being a binary financial decision because um, it's not so simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and you know if you disserve your people, you disserve your customers. We all know that intuitively. Yeah, completely. And um, maybe we we stick on um, just because it's quite. Uh, le less the disease that kind of is impacting the world, but more what that's triggered in terms of the way in which we work now is I'm remote today. I'm guessing you are too. Um, yep. uh, there's, a, there's a feeling out there that it can either change, it will either change work or maybe management f forever. Like this might be the catalyst to the future yep. of work that many of us have talked about. Do, do, do you think it's likely to be, how do you think it will change it? And do you think that, you know, we were in a world of management and we now need to be in a world of inspiration and leadership? How do you think about it? Well, I think that's so for, for, for the kind of all the reasons we, we, we just talked about. And I think maybe a more technical slash tactical thing that's, that's going to be forever changed. And I referred to this briefly earlier is, is um, the paradigm that companies think about in relation to uh, flexible working, remote working, and work-life balance, right? So, you know, coronavirus has taught all of us that remote working is a lot more possible than many of us assumed. Yeah. Um, so by necessity, we're finally developing the habits, the technologies, uh, and the comfort with doing so. Mm -hmm. um, I think what corona, so, so that's one. Um, the second is that I think because people are unfortunately being laid off or made, made in, to be contractors, I think company architectures might change forever fundamentally. So as maybe more companies who maybe had 5% of their workforce be on a contract and project basis, that might, you know, that is currently increasing to say 10, 15, 20%. And that might not change. But in a workforce that might be craving a flexibility and an autonomy and an agency that isn't all necessarily a bad thing. Um, just coming back to the point about remote working and virtual teams too, is there's another dynamic in the workforce that a, a autonomous, flexible working can, will help with and virtual working. And that is that if you think about team dynamics, generally a lot of power dynamics and dominating voices are more easily occur in a face-to-face -face dynamic, right? Because of status, gender, yeah. nationality. When you work remotely, a lot of that gets disintermediated. So I think maybe this is also, I'm hoping, the optimist in me is saying, maybe this is an opportunity for power dynamics to shift, for us to have wider, more inclusive conversations in the workforce. And my hope is that even when we come out of the virus uh, crisis, that 
um, companies will have learned a little bit from this experience and won't simply fall back into the way things used to be. Yeah, indeed. I, I think one of the things that, um, and you talk about it in terms of team dynamics, is how how do we get it right? Like, the, the, there's one aspect of work which is on the task. The other aspect of work is how do you get that task done? Um, there's loads of different yeah. ways that you can do stuff. Yeah, T team maintenance versus task maintenance. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And how how do you think about relationships in this context uh, in the sense that the team dynamics are ultimately you know lots and lots of different relationships between individuals um, that then contribute to the team how how do how do people get this right how do you balance this kind of getting the task done versus getting it in a way in which also strengthens people probably in one of the greatest times of need that they have as social distance yeah. increases for yeah. this sense of social connection like even mm. we struggle even in a mass company zoom with the type of feedback we talked before the podcast recording of um your joy of speaking because how immediate the feedback is and when someone's on mute all the time it's really hard to strike that balance like with all of the nuance by which we're engineered to understand body language or feedback loops all of those things change yeah. like what what's what's your views there Mm. So uh, a couple of things. One is you, perhaps some teams out there, many teams out there are being forced to work virtually for the first time. That inevitably means that everyone is just thinking more about how is this team working, right? How Because you change the environment, that raises everyone's consciousness mm -hmm. about the team dynamic, inevitably. And that's good, right? Because some of that are, are good questions to ask whether the team continues to work remotely and when it comes back together face to face. But the second, and then my second point is that um, I think this also shows that it's useful to, I'm a big believer in team roles, you know, and having, to, and that and those can shift from task to task, from project to project. But I'm a big believer in that it's useful to have one person in the team be dedicated to thinking about how are we working together. Now they could be doing other things in the team as well, but one of their accountabilities is, you know, at the end of every team, meeting or discussion, whatever, to say, how are we working, right? Um, and to just capture those reflections and to have that conversation. That ensures yeah. that at least, you know at least someone is focusing on that. I don't think that's an imbalance, right? All we're asking is one yeah, person yeah. To, yeah. To, 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 to keep an eye on that. And that's, and that's particularly important with teams working in this different virtual environment, maybe for, for the first time. That's a really simple hack that teams can do right now yeah third is so how do we know that we're keeping people engaged well you can engineer that a bit i was saying before that it can be useful to disintermediate some of the power dynamics in a virtual environment another way to do that is to have some company uh, some team dialogue be asynchronous so in other words rather than getting everyone together at three o'clock on a thursday afternoon create just create a discussion board right but yeah. also add an accountability to that in other words to say maybe i'm going to pose a question and I want everyone over the next 48 hours to give at least two responses to that, either respond yeah. to the question or respond to someone else's response. Then you're kind of, uh, you're sort of mandating, as it were, everyone's involvement. Even better if you can make everyone's response even anonymous, right? So people are simply evaluating the merit of the idea rather than 
um, thinking about, well, how will I respond to this? Because this person is more senior than me. So maybe I just won't respond or, you know, I'm going to have to kiss their ass or whatever the case may be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, so making it anonymous, making it asynchronous is, is sometimes a kind of useful way to think about how can you be more creative and having the environment meet the task. Now, of course, an asynchronous anonymous team discussion is not going to work for every team task, but I find that it's particularly useful in early brainstorming time type conversations, right? When you just want everyone to throw out ideas and respond to ideas, um, that's when actually it's really helpful to try, to, to try this out and experiment with it. And yes, you're going to adapt it as you learn and as you go, but what better time than right now, if there is a silver lining behind the context in which we find ourselves, yeah. than to experiment with different team platforms and dynamics and, and ways of working. And that's maybe one to consider. Perfect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this up with just a couple of tips, if you don't mind, which is um, how, uh, just a couple of tips on how you think organizations are best placed to adapt to the expectations of um, people like me uh, to both uh, attract them, um, to be in a position where they keep them there and motivated, most importantly. There's no point in having yeah. somebody there that really doesn't want to be there. So how do you keep it alive over you know, a two to three weird year window that we might want to stay in. The yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I would say just a few things. One reverse mentoring, as I said, make it formal, right? Get, get that, create that feedback loop on a regular basis rather than kind of hope that it will happen organically mm -hmm. Two recognition. And that can be very simple way to do it. Very, you know, inexpensive, um, you know, and don't assume that that is, it's, that's valid only to deliver on in your annual review, right. Of the employee. We, we can help um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Third, um, think about, you know, as I said before, how do you think about work-life balance? Have a different conversation with your people about, and what better time than right now during the Corona virus about work, thinking about work-life balance and remote working. And four, think about culture. And we said, think about that on a more intimate level, on a more micro level, and make it the culture conversation, bring it down to the level of behaviors. What are the behaviors that we need to see from one another? Because that's the only way you know what your genuine culture is. It doesn't matter what you say or what you write down. What do you observe? How do you experience your colleagues? This is also a great time. This is a period of greater reflection. Um, because of coronavirus. That might also be a great time for organizations and more importantly teams to think about their culture, the way they experience one another on a daily basis. And, and you can use that as a power for good <laughs> yeah. to engage your people more, to adhere those bonds between yourselves as colleagues and as friends, or the distance becomes even greater distance, social distancing. You break whatever you know tenuous bonds you had, and we come out of this with your losing people, losing yeah. the morale, losing their engagement. You you can you can make a choice about this. Which way do you want to go? Yeah, indeed, indeed, great. I've I've genuinely really 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 enjoyed this conversation. Um, so As thank, you, thank you so much for spending the time talking to us. Um, and uh, I feel like I need to go and read your book now very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. <laughs> it would, it would be my honor. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.